0: Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. We're in Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. We're going to talk about learning to be content. And here's my question for you. Are you a thermometer or a thermostat? You know the difference, right? A thermometer changes with the temperature. If it's hot, it's high. If it's cold, it's low. On the other hand, a thermostat stays at one temperature. It regulates the temperature. It's in control of the temperature in your home or in a building. That's the difference between a thermostat, thermometer and a thermostat. When we talk about our subject today, about learning to be content, there are some people who are thermometers whose Contentment with life, happiness in life, varies with the circumstances. And there are others who are like thermostats who are steady because they are grounded in something and life can go on around them and things can change and yet they are a constant. Which would you rather be? Wouldn't it be nice to learn to be content so that we don't fluctuate with the changing circumstances around us, the unpredictable circumstances in life and in an unpredictable world. But it's hard to be content because everything in this world seems to be designed to keep us from being content. If you just turn on the TV, you see ads about new cars and suddenly your car feels old, even though you've had it only a couple years. Or you, you see ads about losing weight. Well, who doesn't want to lose weight? Everyone wants to lose weight, right? So they're there to make you discontent The latest styles, the latest shoes, the latest vacations, everything that we see pushed on us in the media is designed to make us discontent with the life that we have. And so it's a big problem if we, as God's people, are always wanting more, which is quite a bit what the rest of the world is like, always wanting more, never satisfied, never content, happy in their circumstances. There's an old proverb that says, not he who has little, but he who wishes for more is poor. Got that? And then there was a millionaire from decades ago named J. Paul Getty. And when he he was asked about what he would change in the world, he said, people should be more content. The way to cure discontent is not necessarily to get more. Now here's a fellow who had just about everything that he wanted. He could buy anything he wanted, but he said the way to be content is not necessarily to get more. Because the question always is, how much is enough to make you content? Are you content today? Are you longing for something more out of life, out of a relationship, financially? Of course, we all want to get ahead. But can you be content with where you are today at the same time? There's nothing wrong with, I think, wanting wanting more in life, doing better in your job, earning more income, living in a nicer home. There's nothing wrong with those things unless they eat at you today and cause you to be discontent. Because discontent is an attitude that really does not reflect the way God wants us to think. So how do we learn to be content? Now you remember that when Paul wrote the book of Philippians, he had every reason to be discontent because he was in prison. Now, prison in those days, I don't think was probably a very pleasant place. <laughs> Understatement. Probably cold. Food was probably bad, unless friends brought him food, which was often the practice of those days as it is in some countries today. Uh, but I imagine he had to fight the rats for it. I imagine bed wasn't very comfortable. I'm sure he would rather be out preaching the gospel, visiting the churches, which is what he did, it was his passion, and I'm sure he'd rather be associated with his friends more closely instead of seeing them only rarely and occasionally. He had every reason to be discontent in his situation in prison. In fact, if you look down at verse 14, he talks about his distress. He says, you have done well that you shared in my distress. By distress, I think he means that he was not in a very friendly situation. He was in an antagonistic environment. The Romans had him in prison, and they were watching his every move, and he didn't know what the future held. He calls that a situation of distress. Now, we mentioned that Philippians also, even though he wrote it from prison, he was able to share the gospel. It didn't stop him there, and he was glad to see that the gospel was being shared around him. But... He really wrote the book of Philippians. Another reason he wrote the book of Philippians was not just to encourage the church and tell them about his situation, uh, but to thank them for a gift that Epaphroditus had delivered to them from the Macedonians. The very poor Macedonians, we learned in 2 Corinthians uh, Corinthians 8, uh, they were very poor from their deep poverty they gave. Well, Epaphroditus brought such a gift to Paul in prison and remember him there. And this is his way a note of saying thank you to them. It's an extended thank you note. But the thing about it is he really doesn't get to thank you until the fourth chapter, the end of the epistle, the end of his letter. Might strike you a little bit odd because you would think that if he wrote to thank them, he would probably thank them in chapter 1, very early. But he had other things to say or you know, it could have also been a cultural thing. What I found out in uh, the country of Ghana and West Africa, is that if you give someone a gift, as we often do, uh, sometimes they can seem less than thankful. They're kind of quiet about it. And they, but they receive it graciously. But then it's very common that the next day, they'll come back and visit you and thank you formally. That's just their culture. That's their way of doing things, It's to thank you in a more formal fashion later whether it be in person or in writing. Well, I don't know what the culture in Paul's day dictated, but he gets a, he gets around to it. He's now thanking them, and he's in thanking them, he's suggesting that they can learn to be content as he also is content. Now, the tricky thing is how do you thank somebody for a gift without giving the impression that you want more? And so that's kind of the, the the tight walk that uh, tightrope that Paul is walking he wants to thank them and be gracious uh, he's great, uh, grateful for their gift but he's not asking for more he's very grateful for what he had uh, you ever been in that kind of a situation where you know somebody really doesn't have much and you want to thank them for it but you don't want to act like you're asking for more um, we have something When someone gets sick in our church, we have what we call a meal train, and they will if you're sick or have a baby or something like that, they'll bring, line up meals for you. And so people will bring meals. And you're grateful for those meals. But after a while, we found out that, you know, if people were bringing us meals, it's just two of us, and they're bringing them every day for a week, we got too much food. (laughs) They bring enough for three or four days, and suddenly we got too much food. So how can we say thank you, but... No, thank you. Well, we we worked it out, so just bring us food every other day. That's what we told the organizer, and that seemed to work a lot better. And we didn't want to appear ungrateful. We just explained to him we couldn't eat that much or eat that fast, even though it looks sometimes like we do. But <laughs> well, let's let's see how what Paul says about learning to be content. Um, let's re- read verses 10 through 13 in its entirety, and then we'll go back and unpack some of these passages. Now, after telling us in chapter four about, you know, resolving this tension between these two women in the church and then telling them to rejoice, that attitude of joy and not being anxious and pray for everything with thanksgiving and then tells them how to think on good things and then we come to verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last your care for me has flourished again though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I'm in to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, verse 10, I think we get our first clue about what it means to learn to be content. And it has to do with recognizing God's providence in our lives and in our situation and in our circumstances. God's providence means that God is uh, in charge of things. He has a will, a sovereign will, that uh, organizes the world and organizes our lives, and he knows what's going on. So we need to understand that God is sovereign. For his providence in the situation and a lot of that comes through in the timing of events friend of mine says that god's timing is god's signature on events timing is god's signature on events when things happen it's when god wants them to happen so paul's saying in verse 10 that he knows that they wanted to care for him And at last, finally, it's flourishing again. That word flourish means to spring to life or bloom. So again, their care for him is is showing itself and blooming again. But somehow they were hindered, he said, because you lacked opportunity. They didn't have a chance for whatever reason, we don't know, and it's not really explained here. But uh, they were not able to deliver the gift that Epaphroditus finally did bring. For about two years, it is estimated that they did not have contact like that with Paul. And so finally, they're able to pick up where they left off a couple years ago and start providing for his needs again with this financial gift for which he is very grateful. So it really has to do with God's timing in this. Why did not God allow them to come a year before? Or have no delay at all? I don't know, only God knows. But Paul recognizes that God is involved in the timing. And he's rejoicing greatly because he realized that their love they continue in their love for him, and he's rejoicing in God's provision for him. He says, "I rejoiced in the Lord because of your care for me. It's nice to know that you still care. It's nice to know that God is still in charge, even though it's a couple of years later. We don't always get answers to our prayers and our needs right away when we ask for them. We would like God to give, give sooner or help sooner, but sometimes he delays for his own reasons and maybe we'll never know until we see him, but it's all for our good. So look for God's timing in things to learn to be content. That means that you may not get today what you think you need or what you're asking for but your contentment may come or should should be of, <laughs> you should be able to be content knowing that God is in charge of the timing of all things in life he knows when you need it what you need and he'll give it to you in time don't you think that Joseph in the book of Genesis had a few questions about God's timing when he was, as a young man, sold into slavery by his brothers and then put into prison by his captors. And he wondered, what am I doing wasting away here with most of my life as a slave, as a servant, as a prisoner? But yet in God's time, he was released and became a ruler in Egypt and very influential, ended up saving Jacob, his father, the nation of Israel in effect because of God's timing. Don't you think Moses had a few questions about God's timing? He grew up in royalty for 40 years, and then in 40 years he, grew, he was a fugitive in the desert. 80 years of his life until he saw that burning bush and was sent back to Israel to bring his people and deliver them into the promised land. But don't you think in those 80 years, Moses would've had questions about what God's purpose for him was or how God would deliver his people who had been, already been in slavery for hundred years. Timing is God's signature on events. Esther recognizes this, doesn't she? When she's uh, in the harem of King Azubairus and the Persian empire and He's getting ready to exterminate all the Jews. And Mordecai, her uncle, begs her to go and ask the king and talk to him about this. And she she recognizes, she does that, and she recognizes that God has put her in that place at that time, she says, for such a time as this. God's timing was perfect. God's timing was precise. How many times did we lack for something, and God would meet that need just in time. Going to seminary when tuition was due, we couldn't pay it, but a check arrives in the mail. Our gas tank was empty, but I remember a time somebody gave me a $10 bill and put some gas in your, put some gas in your car. Unexpected things like this. I could write a whole list of them, and I'd have to go back and read my journals from those years, but there's answered prayer after answered prayer after answered prayer all in god's time when we understand that god's in charge when you understand that time is that timing is in his hand we can learn to be content the way we are today because we know he'll provide what we need when we need it and many of the things we long for we may not need today you worry about your future you worry about about retirement or how situation will be when you have less income. Well, God's in charge of your future. He knows what you'll need. Are you willing to trust him and be content and live happily today knowing that tomorrow is in his hands? Are you content at work with where you are? Are you willing to continue to work and trust God with your future there, with the finances, or? Paycheck that you get with the plans that you have. You wanna buy a house, you wanna buy a bigger house. Are you willing to wait on God's timing for that? Maybe you're trying to have children, haven't been successful. I find out when it comes to having children, God's timing is a very, very important element in that. God says no, nothing happens. And then just when we think nothing's gonna happen, God says yes. You go out and adopt a child and God says yes. How many times have you heard that story? If you want to learn to be content, recognize God's providence in your life and look for his timing. He goes on in verses 11 and 12, I think to say that another part of learning to be content is to have God's perspective, not just recognize his providence, but recognize his perspective and he, And then when we recognize that God is outside of us and he sees all things, he's above our circumstances, then we also can live above our circumstances. And so Paul says in verse 11, that he's not speaking to them because he needs anything. He doesn't see that he really needs anything. Even in prison, as destitute as experiences that may be, deprived of many of the things in life that he would have had at home or in freedom, He's he's still saying there that I really don't have any needs. And he says, and that's because I've learned to be content in whatever state I am. He's not just talking about being in the state of Texas. He's talking about being in the state of prison. I've learned to be content wherever I am and whatever condition I'm in. But he also knows how to learn to be abased. That word abased, of course, means very low. And he knows how to be, to be content when things abound or when they overflow. Kind of, kind of makes me think of a river, like the Trinity River in the middle of the summertime will be just a trickle, very, very dry. You could probably walk across it here, or at least not in some places, and yet sometimes when the rains swell it in the springtime, you have it overflowing the banks and the whole Trinity river bottom is full. Paul knows how to be abased like a trickle in a drought. He knows how to abound like overflowing floodwaters. So he's not hinting to them that he needs. He's not not complaining about anything. He says he's learned to be content. I don't think it was an automatic thing for him. I think contentment comes by learning to be content, by learning to look for God in situations. It's a part of... Christian maturity, it's a part of growing up, I think, as Christians. So it, we, we have to be patient and see how God is working. And over time, we begin to see that He has our best interests in mind and we can learn to rest in Him and to find our contentment. That word content itself has the idea of being uh, self-sufficient or independent of outside pressures, self-contained. If you're content, you don't need anything outside. You're content with who you are, where you are, and what you have. When I read that definition for contentment, it made me think of uh, when I, I kind of feel that way when, you know, we used to, as a young family, couldn't afford fancy vacations to Disney World and ski trips and all that. Um, Hopefully you could, but as a poor seminary student, we couldn't do that kind of thing starting a new church. Our idea of a vacation was to pack up a tent and camping gear and go camping somewhere. So we'd go to a state park or down Galveston, Mustang Island, something like that, and throw up a tent. But I have to say, some of the most content moments of my life are laying there in the tent at nighttime with your family next to you. You've got your family right here, all within sight. You've got the food that you need. You've got a shelter over your head. You've got everything. You're contained in one little spot. Usually the kids are sleeping in another part of the house, you know, and and uh, but here everybody's together, and I just have a feeling of contentment when we were on those kind of camping trips. We were all together, and um, we had have everything we needed for that experience. Well, wouldn't it be nice to have that same attitude towards the things in this world and the things around us, to be content, to know that. We are who we should be, we are where we should be, we're doing what we should be doing. And that's enough for today. Not to be distracted by everything around us that wants to make us discontent with wanting more, bigger, fancier, newer, brighter. To be distracted by things. We lose sight of ourselves and how we can be content. A man walked up on a terrible car accident in the road and evidently the driver was laying in the street all bloodied and beaten up. And he had an arm missing. And the man goes up to him and he says, you've, you've been in a bad accident, you look terrible. And the driver says, my Mercedes, my Mercedes. And the guy says, your Mercedes, look, your arm is cut off, you don't have an arm. He says, my Rolex, my Rolex. (laughs) So distracted by things, he didn't even notice, he wasn't self-aware that he was in big trouble. He had the wrong focus. So Paul could learn to be content no matter what his circumstances were. (laughs) And in verse 12, whether they were good circumstances or bad circumstances, based or abound, um, everywhere, he says, everywhere, including in prison and in all things, under every circumstance, he's learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Paul was happy when he was full and abounding in prosperous, when people were treating him well and kind and giving him all things that he needed. But he was just as happy when he was deprived and persecuted and in prison. I would like to eat steak and lobster every day, and I think that would make me content. But you know what? Some days we just have to eat peanut butter and jelly And we need to learn to be content in those days as well. Whether we have a lot or whether we have little, we should feel thankful and full and content. If we know that God is in control of our circumstances and that we can see from his perspective that we can live above those circumstances, not under those circumstances thing about circumstances is just by definition, they change. Things change. Um, situations change. People change. Uh, health changes. Jobs change. Uh, homes change. Everything in life changes. That's the only thing that we know doesn't change is things that change. It never changes that things change. Let's put it that way. You can be prosperous one day, but like Job, you can have it all whisked away the next day and lose it all. You can be in great health one day, and the next day the doctor gives you words that make you go pale with fear. The world is constantly changing. A year and a half ago, I was teaching in Ukraine. Look at Ukraine now. Two years ago, I was, about this time, I was getting home from Myanmar. As soon as I got home, the military overthrew the government. I can't go back right now. That ministry is closed, so is Ukraine for that matter. Things change. We used to go to India quite regularly. Right now it's very, very difficult to get into, do any kind of ministry in India. There's times of poverty, and there's times of prosperity. Karen and I both grew up probably in what we would call middle-class homes, and everything we met, not every, had all our needs met, not everything that we wanted probably, but going to McDonald's was a big thing in our home, you know, Um, so eating out at all was a big thing in our home. Uh, But we were, we had what we needed, and um, I speak for myself, we had what we needed, and um, we come down to seminary, and suddenly I have to pay tuition, which is very expensive, and can't work because I'm going to school and I've got so much study. So Karen works, Find what we find what work we could. I probably worked any little tiny job I could find and Karen worked downtown Dallas. Um, and that just paid the tuition. Didn't leave us anything extra, but we were pretty poor in seminary. We were pretty poor. <coughs> Many dinners of hot dogs and we had a garden because we lived out in the country kind of and rented a farmhouse for pretty cheap rate, which is why we did that. And we grew a lot of corn. I remember one meal was just corn, corn on the cob. That's, that's all we had to eat. It was great. It tasted great. Got a little tired of it. If you want to see poverty, come with me to Africa. Come with me to India. Come with me to Southeast Asia, and then you'll see poverty. So no matter how poor we are in the United States, there's always things available to us, and there's help available unlike some of these other countries but yet Christians in those countries seem to be happier than Christians in this country many times. They have God's perspective on things. They understand that life is temporary and passing and they're looking to God for their needs. And then there are times of prosperity and frankly which do you think is more harmful to Christians? Times of poverty or times of prosperity? I'd like to suggest to you that it's the prosperous times that are more damaging to a Christian's spiritual welfare than the times of poverty. Because we tend to feel complacent, self-satisfied, everything's going well, we become spiritually lazy. Like the church in Laodicea in Revelation chapter three. They were rich and they had everything. They said, we have need of nothing. And God says, look, unless you're hot or cold, I'm gonna spit you out of my mouth. They had become complacent, lackadaisical, I think that could be true, not only of us as individuals, but we might say that that's something that characterizes even the church in America today. The church in America is prospering and wealthy, and in some places, it's just growing lackadaisical. Hardly, I get uh, emails and belong to some Christian newsletters and so forth. Hardly a week goes by where I don't read about sexual immorality in the church, financial, Uh, fraud in the church, or some kind of scandal in the church? Have we become too successful, too wealthy, too prosperous, too big? We have to keep God's perspective. Because he's in charge, not only the timing, but he's in charge of our circumstances as well. So, live above your circumstances. And learn to be content. Fellow goes up to his friend, he says, How you doing? Friend says, Oh, pretty good under the circumstances. He says, Well, what are you doing under there? (laughs) Never be under the circumstances. Live from God's position and perspective. Be over the circumstances. Live above your circumstances. A lot of that has to do with expectations. So check your expectations, you know. If you expect something and you don't get it, then you're not content. That's the source of a lot of discontent. You thought you would get the job, you were spending the money mentally already or maybe even on your credit cards because you knew you were gonna get the job but then you don't get it. And you're greatly disappointed or even depressed, you're not content because your expectations were different. So bring your expectations, let God be in charge of your expectations as well. You thought your son, your daughter was going to grow up to be a Rhodes Scholar and go to school on full scholarship and, and be so kind and nice to you all the time. And they fall short of that dream for them and you get frustrated and you're not content anymore. Check your expectations. Be realistic about things. Things change and things happen. The grass looks greener on the other side, but it's just as hard to mow, isn't it? So contentment is seeing things from God's perspective and living above your circumstances, being thankful for what you have, and who's around you, your money, your job, your finances, whatever it takes. Adopt an eternal perspective, learn to separate the temporal from the eternal, and hold tightly to the eternal things and hold the things of this world loosely, the temporal things. It's a third way, I think, that we can learn to be content, a third aspect to this three-strand cord of contentment. And that has to do with God's provision. Learn to lean on God's power because in His power, He can provide for everything that we need. And that comes out in verse 13, for I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. A very familiar verse to us, used quite often in the world by many people. But there's a context to this when Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's recognizing that God has the power of providing all things. And if he leans on that power, he says, through Christ, if he leans on that power, he feels like, he can live in any kind of circumstance. In the context, he's talking about living whether he has a lot or little. And and he's saying, I can do either as long as Christ strengthens me. So this isn't just a blanket promise that you can do anything that you want if you're a Christian. I can fly to the moon because I, I uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So I can fly to the moon? No, it's not talking about that. Talking about living in whatever circumstances you are in. You can handle it. You can do it through Christ. So it's a recognition of God's provision. I can be content in all situations, is what he's saying. And note the balance. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now it depends on how you read that. Is he saying, I? can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Or is he saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Or is there a balance? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I go for the balance, or at least for emphasizing Christ, but not boasting about ourselves. So as long as we are in Christ, we are promised his provision and his power for any circumstance in life. And that gives us freedom. It gives us freedom to go on our way, on his way, and live the life that we should live. Kind of like a train on a railroad track. As long as it stays on the track, it can go wherever that track is supposed to take it. And it can go fast. But if the train decides to take a shortcut, what's gonna happen? Disaster. (laughs) It's not gonna make it very far, is it? If we're in Christ, through Christ, we can get where he wants us to go and we can prosper and we can be content but if we decide to go our own way it can be disaster lean on god's power circumstances change but god's power is a constant he's always there he's always powerful every need is met in christ remember at the beginning of the epistle paul said for me to live is christ chapter 1 verse 21 for me to live is Christ that paints a background for everything else he thinks and teaches in the book of philippians we're only self-contained or content if we understand that we are in christ god's power is a constant it's not going to fail there's no power grid that can fail like happened a couple years ago in texas when the power grid failed and some of us got very, very cold in that snowmageddon. God lives off the grid. He's not controlled by the grid. His power is always available. And His grace is always sufficient. I'm always reminded of my friend from India who, uh, who's board I serve on now. And when he became a Christian, his father kicked him out of the, his home and put a gun to his head and said, you're not my son anymore. He was not allowed to take anything with him. On the streets of Delhi, he was destitute, slept on park benches with no food, no clothes. And it was about the third day of being alone and hungry when he he said it wasn't a real voice, but it was like a real voice. God said, now that you have nothing, can you truly say that my grace is sufficient for you? And it was a turning point in his life for he understood that to have Christ was enough. So what's the secret of contentment? What do we have to learn? Well, what he said today is that we should uh, look for God's timing, because if we get out of time with his time, then we're not gonna be content. We should learn to live above the circumstances because if we get caught up and tangled in the circumstances of life, we're not gonna be content. We have to have his perspective. And we need to learn to lean on God's power, not on our own strength. You know, throughout the book, he's been saying that Christ is everything. For me to live as Christ, he says. Then in chapter two, he says, we need to have the mind of Christ. Then in chapter four, he says, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. And now he's telling us that he can do all things. He can face any circumstance through Christ who strengthens him. So, are you satisfied this morning? Are you content? Yeah, there's things that could be better with your health. I could say that (laughs) with my health. There's a lot of things I wish were better. But, you know, I'm driving a 68-year-old used vehicle here, and things are going to break on it, right? We we expect that. If your expectation is to have perfect health until the day you leave this earth, you're going to be living in discontent and disappointment. The older I get, the more I expect things to break, right? So count the blessings that you have today. I'm grateful that I was able to get up this morning, get out of bed, and put two feet on the ground on the right side of the grass. That's a good start to the day for anybody. In First Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. Let me just read this little bit of an extended session that's, uh, section that's related. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, he says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. See that? A godly life with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it's certainly, certain we can carry nothing out. Well, if we didn't bring anything in, we can't take anything out, then everything that we have around us is Extra and we should be thankful for it. He says, and having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. How about that? If you have food and clothing, it's enough. That's what Jesus taught too in the Sermon on the Mount. But those who desire to be rich, now here comes the discontent, you want more. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men. In destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Those who can't learn to be content, who always lust for more, they live sad lives. And, it, and that kind of a life that falls in love with money is easily derailed into disappointment or despair, or even premature death. So let's learn to be content. We came into the world with nothing, we're gonna leave with nothing. Everything that we have around us, the clothes that we wear, the car that we drive, the place where we live, the family that we enjoy, it's all a gift of God. And we should be content with it. Jim Elliott was a missionary who died martyred in the jungles of Ecuador, wrote some books so did his wife Elizabeth Elliot, but here's what he said before he died in one of his journals. He said, let not our longing, actually it was a letter to her, his wife. He said, let not our longing slay the appetite of our living. We accept and thank God for what is given, not allowing what is not given to spoil it. Let me read it again. He says, let not our longing slay the appetite of our living. We accept and thank God for what is given, not allowing what is not given to spoil it. Wise words from someone who said, um, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That famous saying. So are you content today? Are you content that God has provided for all your needs and has the future in his hands and you've given, been given what he wants you to have and he'll take care of you and see you home. If you're listening to my voice today and you're not quite sure that you have eternal life or that you're even going to be in eternity with Jesus Christ, then you would probably feel discontent about your spiritual needs and your spiritual situation. And the answer for that, the only answer for that is to believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Son of God who came, who died on the cross, paid the price for our sins so that God could accept us into heaven, and then he rose from the dead and offers that gift of eternal life. If we simply ask him for it or believe him for it, we can can have that eternal life. So may that be your prayer today. So let me close now. Thank you for listening.